Good morning. I understand that uh, Sam and Andrew are preaching to a number of our young men right now. And I have spies, and I understand that uh, Jared even encouraged some of you to get up and walk out and go over to the other message. It has been really nice having Jared on staff, hasn't it? It's been good. Yeah. No, actually, I'm very excited that uh, they're having that talk over there. Let's go ahead and ask God to guide our time. Father God, uh, I thank you that we can have a series on singleness and finishing well and marriage and parenting. Father, I know that even this morning, I think we have seven different sessions going on at different parts of our church, and we're grateful for that. And Father, as we talk about parenting and grandparenting and impacting the next generation, allow us to be changed by truth, your inspired and errant truth. Thank you for giving it to us, giving us your word. We love you and honor you in the name of Christ. Amen. We're going to start with a short little video. I'll just tell you right up front, I probably would not use the word suck in my sermon, but it is once in the video. Just ignore it. Let it go by. The youth guys told me it's okay, so let's go ahead and show it. Four steps to raising a brat. Money back guarantee. Number one, be your child's friend not their authority figure. Make sure your child likes you at all times. If your child likes you 100% of the time, you are most likely sucking at parenting and therefore raising a bonafide brat. Good job. Number two, give your child everything their little heart desires, especially if they use the, but all my friends get to do it method. For example, if your child's friend has a smartphone and you don't immediately run out and get your child a smartphone too, you may be risking raising a child who doesn't get everything he or she demands. This will result in major failure of bradism. That's a word. Number three, baby them. When they throw a tantrum, immediately drop everything you're doing and run to them. Baby them. When they're crying and whining, bribe them to stop by promising candy and trips to the zoo. That way they'll learn that they only have to listen if they get something in return. This will also make them great students and law-abiding citizens. And no consequences ever. Now if you accidentally break this rule and threaten a consequence, do not follow through. Your child believing you're not going to follow through is an essential step to raising a brat. Even when your son is a 40-year-old man, baby him. This will also guarantee a terrible relationship with your daughter-in-law, so it's almost like you're getting a freebie with this step. You're welcome. Number four, don't hold your child accountable for anything, because you and I both know that your precious little baby can do no wrong. If your child comes home with a bad grade, don't blame your child, blame the teacher. You go in there and you start war. That teacher is probably just jealous of your child's brilliant, perfect, just keep telling yourself, my child would never do that. This makes you incredibly naive. And naive parents often raise 
rats. If you find parenting challenging, difficult, emotionally or mentally exhausting, you might be doing a good job. Stop, regroup. By practicing these four easy steps in your daily parenting, you will shower the world with more entitled, annoying, horrible people. Money back guarantee. Okay. It's my privilege to uh, talk a little bit about parenting. As I do so, I want to say right up front that I don't consider myself a parenting or grandparenting expert. We have read some books. We've four kids that we've successfully or mostly successfully launched into the real world. We've been blessed with lots of great advice, some of which you all have given us, and we are grateful. I also don't believe that parenting is cookie cutter. In fact, we're raising individuals, and lots of times kids say, that's not fair, you didn't treat me that way. That's right, because you're different than your brother or your sister. We parent them all differently. No cookie cutter models allowed. But I do want to pass on a few pieces of advice that we found helpful, and maybe you will. The first piece of advice is this. Three words. I love you. You can't imagine how many 20s and 40s and 60-year-olds make their way into my office, and they're still wounded, they're still hurt, because they didn't hear regularly from mom or dad or both, I love you. Say the words often, I love you, to your children, your grandchildren, surrogate children. They need to hear it. Second, a two-letter word, an important one, no. The world does not need more entitled kids. No. No, you are not dressing like that. That's not how a Christ follower dresses. No, you're not skipping youth group to do X, Y, Z. No, you're not going to talk to me that way. No, and then finish the sentence. We need parents who parent who are willing to say no. Third, character matters. Not only their character, but our character. Character is doing what we ought to do when we don't think anyone is watching. But our children, our grandchildren, they are watching. They are learning. They're imitating us. When you get to be my age, you discover that you've turned into your dad or your mom. If my dad were up here, we twin. It's unbelievable. I can't believe how much I'm like my dad. Good thing the guy's brilliant. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> we model and they imitate. Fourth, we need to learn to talk about difficult topics. Talk about politics with your kids and your views and why. Talk about intimacy as being wrong before marriage or outside of marriage and why. We need to talk about the value of life being made in the Imago Dei and the image of God. From the moment of conception to the moment of natural death, we value life and why. Talk to your kids about racism and how heaven is a place with every tribe and tongue and people and nation. 
Talk to them about the underprivileged and how God cares for them. Talk to them about the difficult topics and teach them how to stand firm on their beliefs, but to stand firm without compromise and yet with grace. The grace part is so important. Fifth, we need to teach our kids delayed gratification. If there's something our country does not teach, it's delayed gratification. We are a buy now, pay later society. We are a buy now, pay later in every area of society. Do you know that the average American family without a raise and without any change of job can live at least 10% higher in a standard of living if we paid off our credit card debts and our other loans outside of a mortgage, we would live on average 10% higher. I preached the same message last week at our Weston campus. One family decided to put that statement to the test and they came back and told me that they will actually live at 16% higher standard of living if they get rid of all of the buy now, pay later styles of living that they have followed. Six, we need to teach the difference between needs and wants. We're not real good at this as a society. Needs are shelter, food, clothing, health, and education, perhaps. Wants are a cell phone. Wants are going out to eat. Wants are cable TV. Wants are a bigger house or a more update car. The want aspect is what's killing us financially as a nation. We buy our wants now and pay for them later, and we mortgage our future in doing so. We need to teach the difference between needs and wants. Seventh, I think one piece of parenting advice that was helpful to me is Try not to compare your children either to themselves with the other kids in the family or those outside the family. Don't compare. I think report cards ought to be between mom and dad and the kid. Maybe not put on the refrigerator, especially if all the kids don't get the same type of report card. Some kids are more academic. Some are more athletic. Some are more artistic. Some have personality press. They're all different and we need to be careful not to compare one child to the next. In fact, I think children ought to grow up with house rules and not that many of them. We need to know the difference between what is important and worth fighting for and what is not. Let me illustrate it this way. Dr. R. Kent Hughes, he's now in his 70s, was the pastor at College Church at Wheaton for a number of years. College Church at Wheaton is a very, very conservative church. Very conservative church. So about 30 years ago, one of his sons came home and said, Dad, Mom, our varsity team has made it into the playoffs. We've all decided to get mohawks, an earring, 30 years ago, and we're going to dye our hair. I can't remember if it were blue or red. And he pastors the most prominent church in Wheaton, Illinois. What does he do? Well, I sat next to him in 
a Texas Rangers baseball game as he told me the story. And he said this. He said, we allowed our kid to get the red mohawk with the earring. The red mohawk is long gone. The earring's gone. We still have our son. Think about the wisdom of that answer. This wasn't a moral issue. It wasn't an ethical issue. It was absolutely a preference issue. And it was an embarrassment issue. Right? 30 years ago, big time. But he wasn't going to parent to protect himself from embarrassment. He was going to parent with the goal of raising a Christ-honoring, God-centered, God-glorifying child. And in their house, I'm not saying they're right or wrong, in their house, that didn't reach the level of a no. And those things are gone. The son is still with them. So what might house rules look like? They ought to be broad. One, in our house, we honor God. We honor God. Think of the brilliance of that rule. It speaks to where you go, what you wear, what you listen to, what you watch, what you do. In our house, we honor God. Two, we honor one another. We honor one another. We're not going to bully each other. We're not going to badmouth each other. We're going to talk down to each other. We're not going to threaten each other. We honor one another. Three, in our house, we work hard. If you're capable of A's, working hard is A's. If you're capable of C's and you work hard, C's are acceptable. We work hard. Four, we tell the truth in our house. A lie will set us back a long time. We tell the truth. And five, family is a priority. We do family. We do family vacations. We do family events. We do family. Think of those five rules. They cover many of the things that we parents and grandparents and surrogate parents want our kids to follow, but we've just narrowed it down to five. You may add six or seven or eight, I don't know, but keep them manageable so the kids know what it is we do as a family. Again, I'm not pretending to be a parenting expert. In fact, I've already made contact with several individuals during this message and they're just thinking to themselves, they pay you for this? I gave you that 25 years ago. And thank you. I appreciate the outline very much. They did. But Deuteronomy also gave it to us. Let me read Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 12. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's the Old Testament Shema. The Old Testament Shema is probably the most famous verse in the Old Testament for those of Jewish descent. If you've gone to the Western Wall, sometimes we call it the Wailing Wall, but they call it the Western Wall, and you've seen the Jewish people with big leather boxes on their foreheads or on their forearms. Inside those are called phylacteries, are several pieces of parchment. On the parchment is one, two, or three verses of Scripture. If there's only one, this would be it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. If you go into a Hasidic house and you see the mezuzah, it looks like a thermometer, but it's on a tilt. And they'll touch it on the way in and they'll touch it on the way out. Inside, that is a parchment piece that has been prayed over by a rabbi. Generally, only one verse is on it. It's Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This passage is central 
to raising the next generation of God-fearing people. That's why they've chosen this verse. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign in your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Listen to verse 9. This is where they get the manuza. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to you, to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, take care, Jeff. Take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. From this passage, I want to draw three principles that I think we desperately need in our lives. We desperately need to teach to the next generation and the generation after that, our children, our grandchildren, our surrogate children. And the first principle is quite simple, and yet it's profound, and that is this. We want to pass on a great love for God. In fact, verse 4 says that we need to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our might. There is no greater lesson to pass on than loving God. And our children know, they know whether we truly love God. They see it. They hear it from our lips. They observe it with our priorities. They know if we truly love God. And I can't pass on to the next generation that which is not reality in my life. For instance, let me illustrate it this way. Let's suppose I wanted to teach the next generation not to be vulgar with their mouth. And yet, I swear quite often, or I swear when I'm upset, what are they going to learn? They're going to learn that when you become an adult, you get to swear especially if you're upset or things aren't going your way. And so if I want to teach the next generation not to swear, I can't be swearing. And man, do we have a project with Betty Ann. We got to work on her as well. Because <laughs> it takes two. No. I have known Betty Ann for 34 years. I have not once, to my recollection, ever heard my wife swear. Not once. The children learn. The grandchildren learn. The surrogate children learn that which we pass on. If we say to the next generation, do not abuse substances, and yet we get tipsy, we get buzzed, we're abusing alcohol, what are we teaching them? That getting buzzed is an adult activity. Become legal and get toasted. That's what we're teaching the next generation. If we want to teach our children to love the Lord our God. They need to see it. They need to see in our priorities. They need to see it in our free time. They need to see it in our finances. They need to see it in our lives that we truly care about God, that He is our all in all. I recently read a longitudinal study. It was looking at 50 years. Fascinating study. They wanted to know 
looking at 20 and 30-somethings who are totally on fire for Jesus, what kind of family did they come from? Some of the results you'll expect, but some might be a little different than expectations. So the number one group of on-fire, Christ-centered, God-honoring kids came from parents or single parents or even a mixed family where the husband or the wife is a believer and the unbeliever was not, but the believer was really on fire for Jesus. The largest group came from those kind of homes where one or more parent or grandparent was sold out for Jesus. That probably doesn't surprise us. Now let me make a caveat. You could have the most God-centered home and be the most God-centered parent or grandparent and still have a wayward child. Proverbs 22.6 is a proverb. It's not a promise. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he grows old, he will not depart. That's a proverb. It means that the more we are God-centered, the more likely we will influence the next generation to be God-centered, yet they may not follow that path. They're more likely to follow it than somebody else from a a less God-centered home, but it's not a guarantee. So the number one group of God-centered, on-fire Christ followers came from homes where Christ was exalted. The second group is a bit surprising. The second largest group came from homes that were either agnostic, atheistic, or idolatrous. Agnostic, they're indifferent to God, or they're not sure he exists. Atheistic, they don't believe in God at all. Idolatrous, they're worshiping a false god. And yet what happens is they go off to a trade school or a tech school or college. They get involved in navigators or intervarsity or crew, or they have a roommate who is a Christ follower. They're introduced to Christ and they're sold out and they become Christ followers. Do you know what the most detrimental home to be raised in? It's a lukewarm evangelical home. If we want the likelihood that our kids will be on fire, it is better that we are atheistic than lukewarm evangelical. Because lukewarm evangelical, the next step is stone cold. Stone cold. So if we want to impact the next generation, we are going to be on fire for Jesus. Single parents, you are going to be on fire for Jesus. Those in mixed marriages, you're going to be on fire for Jesus. Christ followers, we're going to be on fire. Grandparents, Sunday school teachers, and one-way club, and Gen 180 volunteers, we are impacting surrogate parenting children who are not our own. And we are on fire for Jesus. We increase exponentially the next generation's likelihood of being on fire for Jesus. No wonder Moses says in verse 7 that when you sit at home and when you rise and when you go out and when you eat, we are constantly talking about Jesus. We're not beating the kids over the head with a Bible. We're not doing that. But we're showing the grace of God and we're explaining biblical truths and we're reading biblical passages, and we're praising God in worship in a grace-filled environment, and we begin to impact the next generation. 
It might be that at this point some of us are discouraged. It might be that we say, man, that's not the home that I raised the kids in or I'm raising the kids in or the grandkids. You remember what Paul said in Philippians 3? He said, I forget what lies behind. I strain forward for what lies ahead. All of us have regrets. Every one of us has regrets. Yesterday is gone. If we need to confess and agree with God and repent and turn from bad choices to good, let's do it. But what are we going to do today for our relationship with the Lord and for the benefit of the next generation and the generation after that? Today is a new day, a new dawn, and we need to be on fire for Jesus, not only for ourselves, but for those who follow after us. The first point is we want to teach children to love God. The second is like it, and that is teaching to love God is not only taught verbally, but it's also caught. All right, we've kind of gone over that, so it'll be a short point, but I think it's found in the text again. Let me read verses 7 to 9. You shall teach them, that's the teaching part, diligently to your children. And then comes the caught part. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. In other words, everywhere. You shall bind them as a sign in your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. We want to impress upon them. It says you shall teach them diligently. That's a long phrase in English. It's actually one compound word in Hebrew. To teach them diligently comes out of the textile industry. It might be a shirt. Suppose you have a white shirt and you want to make it blue. You'd get a certain dye and you put the dye in the water and then you'd mix up the water with the dye and you get the blue dye and then you'd take the shirt and you'd submerge it and then you'd pull it up and let it dry and then you'd put another certain coat on it so whether you wash it or dry it or it's years old, the dye remains. That's the word. Teach them diligently. It's the word used if you have some metal, a hunk of metal, and you heat it up, and it becomes soft, and you take some kind of impression, and you push it into the soft metal, and you pull it out, and then you allow it to cool until the metal is hard, and the impression remains. And that's what we want to do for the next generation. We want the impression of Christ to remain. We want to seize the opportunity to tell biblical truths and to model biblical truths for the next generation. Diligently means repeatedly. That's what it means. From time to time, uh, I'll have a conversation with a Christ follower. Sincere, maybe very godly, but they're going to take a different view than I'm going to share right now. They might say something like this. My daughter is 15 years old. It's time that her faith becomes her faith. I'll agree with that. Okay, we're, 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 we're tracking so far. And then the parent might say, you know, because we want her faith to be her faith, we're going to allow her to choose whether to go to Gen 180 or go to Sunday school or go to church. It's her choice. And I don't think that squares with the text. The text tells me that I am to impress deeply I am to seize the opportunity. I am to seize the day. Carpe diem. Seize the opportunity with that child. 
And as long as that child is under my roof, I want to impact them with biblical truth. And I think this way. Let's go back to that 15-year-old. Now the 15-year-old comes to you and says, Mom, Dad, I'm done with academic school. And we say, well, yeah, you're 15. Of course, you get to choose. But most of us wouldn't say that. If we wouldn't say that with academics and education, why would we say it with Christianity, a vital education as well? We have the opportunity to imprint the next generation. We need to seize that opportunity. Yesterday is gone. Today is here. It says diligently train the next generation. If our child never learns how to kick a ball or hit a ball or throw a ball, all is not lost. If our child does not get a six-figure income, when she grows up or he grows up, all is not lost. When they don't get into the college of our choice for them, all is not lost. When they go to a formal dinner and there's like four forks and they don't know which one to use, all is not lost. But if we fail to impress the grace of God on the next generation, a lot, a lot is lost. So we need to seize the opportunity to impress upon the next generation. One way we can do it is through devotions. I know that's a, a scary word. Let me share one way that devotions does not work and then offer one way it might work, one of many. The one way it won't work is this. In our house, we do devotions. And so when the oven opens up and the wafting smells of a magnificent meal fills the air and then it is put on the table and everybody sits down and, and dad prays and everybody wants to eat. He says, whoa, 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 whoa. No, no, no. We do devotions. Tonight we're in Leviticus 4, 5, 6 and there's a bonus, chapter 7. And uh, dad reads all of them and makes a comment on every single verse. And then everybody gets to eat and we want them to love God's word. Praise Jesus. Doesn't work so well. But if we say... We're kind of underachievers in the Heinz house, so we do devotions like a couple times a week, maybe, and uh, we know that life happens, so we're going to um, have the meal out and a quick prayer, and then everybody gets to eat except whoever's reading, in our house, me, and we don't use Leviticus, maybe it's Philippians or Ephesians or one of the Gospels, and and it's not four chapters, it's like one or two paragraphs. That, that's it, you know? And I have a cheater Bible. I have one up here too. My cheater Bible has notes at the bottom in case I have no idea what I'm talking about. Well, I've, I've got one of those at home at the dinner table. And so I read one paragraph or two and make one comment. That's all they really need. And they're eating, so I have a captive audience and then I get to eat. If you do that year after year after year after year, how much Bible do you think they get? Probably quite a bit. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Anyone can do what we did for devotions. Anyone. It takes no degree whatsoever. 
If you can read, you're in. Most of us can read. The first lesson. We want to teach and model what it means to love God. The second lesson. We want to teach the word and we want it to flow from our lives. And the final lesson is we want to teach gratitude. We want to teach gratitude to this great God. Let me read verses 10 to 12 again. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. What we have here is Moses reminding the Jews that God gave them the promised land. They didn't earn it. Yeah, there's the whole conquest of Joshua, but it was God that gave the victory against the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hittites. Etc. God gave the victory. They're not self-made. In fact, they came into the land and there were houses already built. There were groves of olive trees. There were vineyards of grapes. There were wells or cisterns that were already dug. Isaiah puts it this way in Isaiah 26, the 12th verse. He said, O Lord, you will ordain peace for us. You have done for us all our works. Moses, Isaiah, they're not saying that hard work doesn't advance you. It does. They're not saying that training, technical training, academic training doesn't advance you. It usually does. They're not saying it's not who you know that is beneficial because it is. What they're saying is this. None of us are nearly as self-made as we think we are. Think for yourself of the most accomplished man or woman, think of who comes to mind. Place that individual, now she or he is born in Somalia, or South Sudan, or North Korea, or Afghanistan, or in Europe during the Dark Ages. How advanced have they become? We're not that self-made. It doesn't mean we don't work hard and we don't pursue and go after it. We do. But there's God's grace and God's grace and God's grace. We live in the 21st century in the country that uses more resources than any other country in the world. We are a blessed people. Moses says, don't forget in your prosperity to teach gratitude to God. The largest passage in the Bible on financial giving is 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And one of the reasons given to give God the first fruits is out of gratitude. I think of prayer. I like the acronym CATS. Confession. Adoration, thanksgiving, supplication. Start with confession because Psalm 66, 18 says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, he will not hear me, so I need to confess up. The middle two, adoration and thanksgiving are all about the glorification of God. Why do we pray that way? 
Because God is worthy. Why do we sing songs? Because God is worthy. Why do we evangelize? It's not only so that hell will be emptier. It's because the universal glorification of God does not exist. That's why we have missions. That's why we have evangelism. Because God is worthy that people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation will worship him. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Psalm 2 says that God will break the knees. He will shatter the knees of those who do not bow before the Lord because the glorification of God is a necessity. It's a necessity. What do we want to teach ourselves and the next generation? To love God. To really love God. To demonstrate that by what we teach verbally and how we live. And then to be filled with gratitude for who this great God is. Let's pray. Father God, it's always intimidating talking about a topic like parenting, knowing that there's so much more that I should have done, could have done that there's so much more learning necessary and applying necessary in my life. But Father, I take comfort in the fact that it's your word that we looked at today. And we ask that you would apply your word in our lives and to our families. And as we raise the next generation, the generation after that, whether children of our own or grandchildren or someone else's children. Help us to model what it means to love you, to love your word and live it out and to be grateful. We ask this as individuals, as families, as a church family for your great glory. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.